Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. On one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. As we look at the life of Joseph, I don't know if there is a more comparable life to the life of Christ in all of the Bible. There's so many things in Joseph's life that mirror what Christ would do uh, much, much later. The fact that he was sold by his brothers into this slavery and Jesus was sold for, for silver by Judas as well. The fact that he was rejected by his own and Jesus also was rejected. He was falsely accused. He was forsaken. He was tempted as Christ also went through a temptation. He is the, the one through whom God would reach out to save the rest of the world from this famine. And Jesus, of course, is the one through whom, as He promised Abraham, would go out to the other nations. The blessing upon Abraham would go out to the other nations. It's through Joseph's suffering that the people of God were delivered during the famine. It's through Jesus' suffering that the people of God are delivered throughout all eternity. And so there's so many different parallels that we see within the life of 
of Joseph. And in this chapter, it's, it's no different. Because we see Joseph going through and facing a temptation, we also are reminded of two other temptations that are very important within the Bible. At the very early parts of the book of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve. They're in a place that they're well provided for. There's just one test, one temptation for them in the garden, and that's to eat of the tree that they're not supposed to. But we see within Adam and his temptation and that failure on his part, we see sin brought in. But you know what? It would be later through the second Adam, through Christ, that he would overcome the temptation that he was faced with and prove that he was the Son of God and the one that would deliver us from the sin that Adam's failure brought us into. Well, we see a large picture of that as we look at Joseph's life here this morning. And and what I'd like to consider as we look at it this morning is triumph in temptation. Well, you know, last week we covered some very dark subjects in the life of Judah. And we talked about how that would be in a stark contrast to the life of Joseph. And I mentioned last week that about everywhere Judah failed, Joseph succeeds. And so it's a very encouraging to look at the life of Joseph. And, but you know what? It's almost, almost too encouraging. Joseph's doing the right thing, doing the right thing, doing the right thing. And he gets sold into slavery. He's doing the right thing. He gets thrown into prison. He's doing the right thing again in prison. And it seems like every negative thing that happens to Joseph, he just keeps doing the right thing. It almost, it almost seems too good to be true. With what we have recorded of Joseph's life, we see the guy that just no matter what evil is done to him, he just takes it in stride and he keeps doing the right thing. He keeps living that righteous life. And that makes you think it's got to be pointing to something else. And I'm certain it is. Because all those things that we see in Joseph, we see in Jesus Christ. And he is the greater Joseph. He is that righteous one who's coming for us one day. But you know what? At the same time, we get this pattern in Joseph's life that we can use as an example in our own life. The things, the places where we see him succeed, we can succeed as well. You know what? In our places of work or our places of study, we should be a blessing wherever we are. It doesn't matter if we're in a position or circumstances that we think are favorable or unfavorable. We should be a blessing wherever we are. We should be constantly looking out for the welfare of others, just as Joseph did with with Potiphar, and as he did again when he's down in the prison. And and we should be striving to be that blessing. We should be the the people that people can trust. That's what happened with Joseph. Potiphar ends up trusting him for everything, running everything in in his life. Hardly pays attention to anything because he knows Joseph has got it taken care of. The jailer is going to do the same thing and one day Pharaoh is going to do the same thing. And we should be those kinds of people. People that that other people want to put in positions of responsibility because they know you can be trusted. Well, one thing I find in looking at the life of Joseph is that as I study each little part of Joseph's life, I'm constantly looking forward to the end. I don't mean that I want the story to be over sooner, and I don't mean that there's not a lot of principles we can't glean all the way through it. I just find that as he's getting knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, I keep taking encouragement and hope from the future because I know the story already, and I know that in the future he's going to be raised back up out of that prison. He's going to be put in a prominent position, and he's going to be the vehicle through which God is going to deliver the world from the famine at that time. It's such a bright finish. It's such a happy ending that I keep looking forward to it as I study these different parts as he's going down, down, down. That's exactly what the Christian life is like, too. You realize that back when we looked at God giving the the promise to Abraham, this covenant to Abraham, the very first thing that he told Abraham was is that you're going to go through 400 years of slavery, your people. 400 years. 
So as God promises Abram that, yes, I'm going to make you into a great nation, part of that would be through those 400 years. He's going to use them to reach out even to bless the whole world. But he says, but first something else is going to happen. You're going to be persecuted and ill-treated for 400 years. Can you imagine living in that time? Knowing that, well, we're 200 years into the slavery, according to what God told Abraham. 200 more years to go. Can't wait till that's over. <laughs> it's going to be beyond your lifetime. But they're still looking to the future. Did you know what? Becoming a Christian doesn't always make your life just easier. I admit, in our society, born in a Christian nation and stuff, there are elements of my life that, that are easier. That I don't go through as many struggles because of following the principles of Jesus Christ. He does protect me from some things as I follow His principles. So there's a safety net a little bit built into there. But you know what? As you look around the world, the world that the apostles were in, when you look around the world in different parts of it today, even some of the things on the news today, Christians are persecuted people. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to people, he would tell them it's through many hardships, it would be through many persecutions that we would enter into the kingdom. The brightest spot of our life as in it isn't actually in this life. It's in the future. And the Christian life only makes sense to be one, a life that's lived looking toward the future, looking toward the time when we get to be with Christ and everything is awesome. Now, it's not that God isn't going to give you a bunch of victories uh, leading up to that point, but those are probably going to come with some tough times and some persecutions and some hardships as well. But as we look at it this morning... I find that in Joseph, with all the hardships that he keeps going through, then he feels a little bit of success, he's doing well, he's being pleasing to the people around him, and then boom, right back down, another notch down. He's got those dreams that he had at the very beginning, but that's all he's got seemed to be enough because he's just trusting in the character of God, and he's just continuing to do the things that are pleasing to God. And in this chapter that spells out the darkest time of Joseph's life, at least four times in this chapter it says, and God was with him, and God was with him. And God was with him. And God was with him. Which leads me to believe having God with you is not so much seen in your circumstances as it is seen in how you handle them. Joseph had to be sometimes saying, uh, now I'm a slave. How is God with me? Now I'm in prison. How is God with me? God was with him in the way he was able to handle those things and he stood with it. And you know what the amazing thing is? And we see God do this many times throughout Scripture. So many times. Remember what the brothers were doing. Here's that dreamer with those dreams that we're going to bow down to him. Let's get rid of him. We're going to kill him. Then they decide, nope, sell him into slavery. But they said, now we'll see what happens with his dreams. It was that sin of selling off their brother that actually led to the fulfillment of those dreams. As they will one day come to Egypt and stand before Joseph and finally find out who he is and bow before their brother. It's an awesome, awesome thing. But as we look at this here this morning, Let's see four different helps in overcoming temptation because we'd recognize that temptation isn't something that's limited to Joseph. It's not something that's limited to Adam. It's not something that's limited to Jesus Christ. Those are prominent temptations in the Bible. But, you know, even the book of James, when it says, when you are tempted and starts to give you instructions or understanding about your temptation, notice he doesn't say if you are tempted. It's when you are tempted because we all face temptations within our life. Well, the first help is consider it one. Now, what, what I mean by this is that this battle has been fought for you already, and it's in the temptation of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about a self-help book. It's, it's not about tips to make a smoother living. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of principles in there that God intends us to apply to our life, and they do make our life better before God. They do make us able 
to glorify God and to live out and fulfill our purpose in His life. Christianity is about the fact that somebody did it for you. Even in the life of Joseph, as I'm reading, I kind of notice that I kind of tend to put myself kind of in the characters' lives. Like with David. For years when I read about David and Goliath, I always think I'm David going out there to fight Goliath. You know, it wasn't even until even just recently that I realized that I got myself completely goofed up in that story. Not that some of the principles there don't help you to overcome giants in your life. That's true. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, in the David and Goliath story, I am not David going out to fight the Goliath. You know who David is? It's Jesus. And you know who I am? I'm one of the brothers sitting on the hill shaking in my boots. That's who I am. While David, Jesus, goes out to fight the giant for me and conquers and wins. You see, I'm the recipient of the benefit of the victory of Jesus, just like the brothers were the benefit of the victory of David over Goliath. That's who I am. I did the same thing in this story. Because I find myself being Joseph. And now, don't get me wrong, we do need to put ourselves in Joseph's place to learn some of the principles that we're going to gain from the story. But in the big picture, in the big picture, I'm not Joseph. You know who Joseph is? It's Jesus. You know who I am? I'm one of the brothers that sold him into slavery. But what happens in the big picture? Joseph, the one that was sold over to slavery by his brothers, is the means of delivering those same brothers. Why did Christ go to the cross? Why did Christ die? He died for my sins. I'm the one that hung him on the cross. You're the one that hung him on the cross. It's for our sins that he died there. So we're really the guilty party and... Jesus is Joseph. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross to die for our sins. Joseph is handling this temptation. Well, that points to another greater temptation, a temptation that we see in Jesus Christ. And what do we see Jesus Christ doing in that temptation? He overcame it. He successfully withstood the temptation. You see, He was doing that for us. He was demonstrating His righteousness up against Satan's wickedness, and He won the victory. If we're going to stand before God, it can't be on our own righteousness because the Bible says we don't have any. The little bit that we have, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. No value for anything. If we're going to stand before God, we've got to be standing before Him in the righteousness of Christ. So when Christ was overcoming Satan in His temptation, He was doing it on our behalf. And when He laid down His life for us and then rose again from the dead, He was doing that on our behalf so that we could be given the righteousness of Christ He was taking our sin upon Him, Himself, and trading us for His righteousness. That is so liberating. I find that I have so much more power over temptation in my life when I realize that that battle is already won. That Christ has already overcome it. When I'm facing a temptation toward sinning, toward doing something wrong in my life, and I recognize that, you know what? Jesus already overcame this. There's just something inside of me that just says, that's right, I'm done with it. It's so much easier to walk away from it, knowing that Christ has already overcome this in my life. He's already paid for this in my life. He's already given me the righteousness that I need instead of that. And there's such a liberating understanding when you recognize that it's not about how strong you can be in overcoming a sin. It's about what Jesus Christ has already done for you, and you get to live in the light of what He's accomplished. In our midst. Secondly, consider others. We see Joseph's first response is towards Potiphar. Potiphar's wife comes before Joseph and tries to get him to enter into this immoral relationship with her, and and he won't do it. She's persistent. She repeatedly tries to push him in this, and he won't do it. What is his reasoning? 
The first reason that he gives, I don't think it's the first in order of priority. I think of these would be switched in order of priority. But the first reason that he gives is in considering Potiphar. He's considering others. He's saying, look, your husband, my master, trusts me. He's, he's put everything in, in my care. He doesn't pay attention to anything except for the food on his plate because he trusts me so much. The obvious question is, how could I do this to him? How could I hurt him like this? You see, he considers others. Remember last week we talked about how sin always influences other people. It always impacts other people. We drag other people in with us. Well, that's the, one of the keys to overcoming temptation is to consider those people. Who's this going to hurt? What's it going to do in their lives? I've talked to people before that are, that are telling me that they're heading down this path in their life. They've entered into a new relationship and they're going to pursue this other relationship. And they're telling me how they finally found that one person for them. And now this is, so, this is true love. And I said, do you realize what this wake of true love is going to do? Do you know what it's going to do to your wife? Do you know what it's going to do to your children? And down the road, your future grandchildren? Do you know what it's going to do to that person's people that they're connected with? I try to encourage teenagers the same way when they're dealing with issues of, of morality in their lives. And, and I say, you know what? When you want somebody to participate with you in a, in a sexual act and you're not married, do you realize what jeopardy you're putting that person in? What family conflicts you're opening up in their lives? What trust issues you're going to cause them to violate between them and their parents or them and other siblings? or them? You know, sin is ugly. And we glamorize it sometimes because it looks so fun and we want to participate in some of those things. And it's, it's devastating. When I stop and think, if, I, if I'm going to go a different direction with my life than what God has for me, and I think, and my, my children are adults now, but what is that going to do to my children? If I was to turn and walk away from my faith, if I was to do something that was not consistent with my faith, what impact is that going to have even on my adult children? Lisa and I watched our our parents, I watched my, I was out of the house, married, had a kid or two, watched my parents divorce, and it hurt. We watched Lisa's parents divorce later on in life, and it hurt as adults. So then I can't imagine what it would be like as a little kid watching those things take place. But you know what? Joseph considered other people, and it saved him so much heartache, so much headache. Now, granted, it got him cast into prison. <laughs> but you know what? Joseph will be a lot more free in prison rather than in bondage to the sin with Potiphar's wife if he would have followed that path of temptation. It's better to be in prison with God than in the palace without Him. If we consider our actions before we do them, if we stop and think, well, if I go down this road, what's that going to do to the people that are around me? We will find ourselves overcoming temptation more in our life and making much better choices. But then not only did he consider others, he also considered God. How can I do this great wickedness, he says, against God? As I mentioned repeatedly through this passage, it keeps pointing out the fact that as he's in slavery, God is with him. As he's in prison, God is with him. God is with him. God is with him. Over and over and over. As we look in verse 2, right after he was bought from the Ishmaelites, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 5, the blessings of the Lord was on all that he had. Verse 21, while he's in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. A little bit in verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. You know, God just wants us to trust Him. And we're going through hardships and struggles in our life. He just wants us to trust Him. To know that He has our best in store. And sometimes some of the worst things that we're going through, He's going to use those for something better for us. And He wants us to hang on that. 
when we look at the life of Joseph, him getting betrayed by his brothers and sold off into slavery must have been a huge bummer. Him getting falsely accused and sent into prison, huge bummer. Him being forgotten by the guy that could have got him out of prison maybe, huge bummer. It looks like one more bummer after another step down, 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 down. And you know what? God's going to put all those bummers together and deliver the world of that famine. You just had to trust Him. The way that, that it happened, the very sins, and every one of those was a sin, that somebody committed against Joseph, and in the end, Joseph sees clearly that it had a very definite purpose. So when you get to Genesis chapter 45, it says, And God sent me before you. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Once he reveals himself to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, Joseph recognized that you had evil intentions. Your motives were not good. But you know what? It was actually God that put me here. It's not just you. And God did it so that I could deliver you. And you know what he's doing to his brothers at this time? He's trying to settle them down. He's trying to say, relax, be at peace. Because they just found out that it's Joseph who they're standing before as second in command in Egypt, and they know uh, we're dead. <laughs> and they're shaken. And Joseph says, no, it's okay. It's okay. You know what? It wasn't you intended it for evil. That's true. But you know what? God used it to send me here. This is what This was God's plan. This is how He sent me here so I would be here to deliver you and deliver your children. Wow, imagine that. It's just like when Jesus was on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Joseph had that same kind of thing with his brothers. In fact, he says, you know what? Don't worry about it. Be at peace here. I'm going to feed you. Go, go home and get dad. Bring dad. Bring him back here. I'm going to have a place all set up for you. You're going to be well taken care of. And then at the end of the book, when their dad dies, they get scared again. So they say, well, now that dad's dead, he probably just didn't want to make dad sad before. Now we're goners. And then in chapter 50, Joseph answers that. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So he repeats the same thing. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph completely just wanted to take care of his brothers. Even though they sold him into slavery, he wanted to take care of his brothers, take care of his family because he was so sure that God is the one that put him into slavery. God's the one that put him into prison. God's the one that left him there for a couple more years until it was just the right time for him to come and interpret the dream and save the world. So he's considering God. Again, going to that bigger picture, that's how God puts the chosen people in Egypt. Because Israel will move there and they'll stay there till the end of Joseph's life. And then another Pharaoh will rise up that doesn't know Joseph and he's going to enslave the people and they'll be there for enslaved for 400 years. At the end of that enslavery, God's going to send Moses in to deliver his people and he's going to bring his people out of Israel. And that's exactly what Hosea was referring to in chapter 11 and verse 1 where he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea would be looking backwards to the time when Moses would come and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he would also be looking forward to the time when Christ would come back home. You see, because when Jesus was a baby, Herod wanted to kill him. He knew there was a new king born somewhere, but he doesn't sure where. So he's trying to find him and he's trying to kill him. God warns Joseph and they take Jesus down into Egypt where he'll be safe. Just as the children of Israel went down into Egypt where they'd be safe from the famine before, he takes Jesus, his son, down into Egypt where he'll be safe from Herod. 
And then Matthew in chapter 2.15, it says, And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Just as God through Moses called the children of Israel up out of Egypt and into the promised land, God would send his son Jesus Christ down into Egypt to be protected from Herod for a time. And when Herod died, God would, they looked at that and said, that's a prophecy out of Egypt. I called my son and here comes the son of God to redeem us from our sin. That's how God worked to get him where he needed to be in order to bring that deliverance. And so he could see God's hand in all those things, even the negative things in his life. And then finally, and we'll end with this, the last one, we need to consider it one. Consider the battle is one. You've already got the victory in Jesus Christ. Just live in that victory. Consider others and the impact it will have on them. Consider God and what He may be doing in your life that you can't see, that you can't know exactly what He's doing yet. And the last one is run. Just run. That's it. You know what? Consistently the Bible has the same answer. Joseph was smart. He had this temptation that was put before him. Just as she was persistent in her offer, he was consistent in his rejection. And he continually said no. And then it says he stepped it up once. And as she continued to persist him, he refused to go into her or even to be with her. In other words, he's trying to stay away. Don't get caught alone with her in the house. And one day, everybody else steps out. I guess he's unaware of that or whatever. And she catches him in a position where he's alone and vulnerable. And what does he do? He runs. She grabs his jacket. Out comes the arms. He's just on a dead run. He's out of there. You know, when you're in temptation, you're looking at something that is destructive to you. Maybe, depending on what temptation is, something to destroy your health, something to destroy your family, something to destroy the important relationships in your life. You need to run. Don't mess around with it. You're not a stronger Christian because you can hang in there and take it. You're a foolish Christian if you hang in there and take it. The Bible says it repeatedly. I think of Paul's advice to the younger Timothy. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see what he tells them to do? Flee. Those youthful passions, those temptations that can come your way, just run. Just get out of there. 1 Timothy 6.11, he does the same thing. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, he writes to the people and he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I don't even think we understand the depth of the damage that we do to ourselves when we sin sexually. The Bible says it's on a whole different level than other sins in our life. What does he say? Flee. Get away from it. I remember Chuck Swindoll counseling a young couple that was engaged. They're going to get married. They're very in love. and But they you know, faced temptations of remaining pure till their wedding date and stuff, of course. And, and they said, we decided, you know, that every time we go for a walk on the beach and stuff, if we feel tempted, we're just going to kneel and pray. And they lived in an area where the beach was close by. And so they'd go on these, you know, evening walks, very secluded beach and stuff like that. And he says, you're crazy. He told them, he said, don't, do, don't, go, on, don't go for a walk on that beach at all. He said, you know what you're doing? It's like you're sticking their head in the lion's mouth and saying, Lord, please don't let it bite me. Foolishness. We always encourage our kids, look, when you're dating, date in public. Go to a restaurant. You know, in a restaurant, you can talk about all, anything in the world you want. Nobody even cares what you're talking about. But there's a lot of things you can't do in a restaurant. And that'll protect you. That's what Joseph was. He was fleeing. He was getting out of there. He was trying to stay away from those places where that temptation would pop up. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, everybody else has gone through this too. You're not alone. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape. If God doesn't tempt me above my ability, then why did I have a temptation that I caved into? Because you didn't take the escape. Look around. There's an escape hatch somewhere. Get out. Consistently, God's advice to the tempted person is the same thing. Get out of the temptation. Flee from it. Run. If we take these four helps in dealing with our temptations that we face, I think we have a great opportunity of success. If we consider that this battle is already won, that Jesus has faced the temptations and overcome them and proved righteous, gone to the cross and resurrected again from the dead for me, and I can live within His righteousness for my life, I can overcome this. If I consider the other people that I'm doing damage through by my bad actions, if I consider the God and what He's doing, and just trust Him through this thing. And when it comes up to those times, run. Just get out of there. Then I would say we could do very well indeed.